1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, May 22nd, the two kids in a hot car edition. I'm Alison Benedict, an editor at Slate, and the mother of Harry, five, Sam, three, and Wally, one.
2: I'm Dan Kois. I'm also an editor at Slate, and I'm the dad of Lyra, who is nine, and Harper, who is six.
0: Hey, Dan. Hey, Allison. Dan is also standing today. He's recording the podcast standing, yes. which just making me uncomfortable. We're both in the same studio. We're normally not. So he's you should, next to me and he's standing.
2: You should definitely feel a lot more assertiveness coming from me today. And at the end of this podcast, Allison is going to give me a raise.
0: On today's show, we'll talk to writer Paul Tuff about his latest New York Times magazine feature on an ingenious new program at the University of Texas, which aims to get more students to graduation day. And Dan and I will discuss a real-life ethical dilemma that Dan recently faced and wasn't sure how to handle. Also, parenting triumphs and fails, recommendations, and a listener call on how to handle grandparents who are desperate to spend time with your children. But before we get to all that, a quick reminder to subscribe either to the Slate Daily podcast feed or to the Mom and Dad are Fighting feed in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends, tell your family, help us spread the word. Okay, on to triumphs and fails. All right, I'll start.
2: I've got a triumph this week. Um, It's a pretty good one. So uh, so this week, uh, my older daughter, Lyra, who's in third grade, um, they had their end of year historical wax museum event in which uh, each kid is uh, assigned a certain figure from history. And then they write like a little report about that figure from history and then they memorize it. Uh, in English and in Spanish. Um, And then they dress up like the person, and then they all assemble in the library as if they are wax characters, and they have, like, little stars on their hands, and you, parents and other kids come in, and you press the star on the kid's hand. Then they come to life and tell you who they are (laughs) and who they are from history. And so, anyways, this is a thing that kids love. And because it happens in May, toward the end of the school year, uh, parents, or at least I, like loathe this idea of, uh, of having to come up with an entire costume for this historical figure, Madam C.J. Walker. Allison, do you know about Madam no. C.J. Walker? I had never heard of Madam C.J. Walker.
0: Wait, is there, are these assigned or are they yes, choose? Yes, they
2: they're, they're assigned. Well, okay. they have a list. They're like assigned a list of four and then they choose one of them. Okay. So Lyra um, was Madam C.J. Walker, about whom I knew nothing. It turns out, Madam C.J. Walker, uh, born Sarah Breedlove, was a turn-of-the-century black entrepreneur who parlayed hair creams into a fortune, making her generally believed to be the first self-made woman millionaire in America. So, you know, interesting and stuff. But then I got to come up with like a 1900 appropriate costume, which is like, you know, come on. You know, and this like so this sort of drives me crazy at the end of the year. There's actually a very funny blog post by the, uh, the parenting blogger Jen Hatmaker recently um, about end of year school malaise and how parents like kids by the end of the year are just like playing out the string and just begging for the last day of school to come. Um, she has a funny line in there that I was thinking while I was trying to figure out this costume. We were awesome in October. Don't you forget that we used to care. And that counts for something. So anyways, we had to come up with this costume and Ollie and my wife did a great job of coming up with like how to do like a sort of a hoop skirt, which was just a Halloween themed, uh, Skirt that one of them had worn as a witch previously that was sort of hoopy, and then she just pinned a navy blue bedsheet to it. But the pièce de résistance of this costume was my invention, which was uh, that uh, Lyra was like, "Well, but she sold hair creams. I want to be able. I want people to see the hair creams." So I got a Tupperware and I printed out one of Madame C.J. Walker's labels and pasted it to the top of the Tupperware, and then. Uh, Lyra just squirted a shitload of shampoo into the Tupperware and so then at the Wax Museum you know all the kids had a couple of parents around them but Lyra was completely surrounded by adoring first grade girls who all just wanted to smell the hair product so Lyra would like do her whole speech which was like an hour like she had like six index cards full of stuff about Madam C.J. Walker and then at the end she would open up her thing and all the girls would gather around and smell it and then she would give a little dab of it to people's hair (laughs) So my triumph is that I came up with this genius idea for Madam C.J. Walker and felt just once like not a failure as an end of your parent.
0: And your daughter got to feel like she was baptizing her (laughs) classmates. With
2: hair cream that I bet these days would be slightly like politically suspect because I think that hair cream was specifically like a lightening or straightening cream that seems sort of weird now.
0: Um, Anyway. Okay. Well, good job, I guess. Thanks. (laughs) Uh, After last episode's humongous fail for me. I know many of you were hoping I would top it, but that hasn't happened. (laughs) Uh, But I still have a small fail. Sorry. A potty training fail, which is, we haven't talked about potty training on this this show. A couple of readers have have written in, but we thought, you know, I don't know. I guess we've just thought it's something that, like, everyone goes through, but then it works itself out, and do we really need to talk about it? But I do need to talk about it. (laughs) Um, because, uh, Sam, he's three, he's not potty trained for a while. Maybe six months ago, he was peeing in the potty. Do you say peeing in the potty? We say peeing in the potty, yes. We do
2: not say pishing. What the hell is that? That was what
0: we grew up with, pishing in the potty. Uh, and then he stopped and we tried to coax him back on. He stopped
2: peeing completely? No, in the potty. Phew.
0: And he was really digging in and getting upset. And so we said, all right, I think like the experts say if they're really like... Pushing back, you should just stop. You should stop pressuring them. Right. I don't really. I didn't read any of the books because Harry just did it. To, did it himself, basically. We never had to really potty train Harry, so we never had to potty train <laughs> him. Um, but anyway, so we stopped. And then finally, a couple months later, we decided, like, this kid is approaching three and a half. We better try again. And it's been working. He's been great. He's been peeing in the potty, like, exclusively for a week. So we decided we have to step up our game. We take him to Target. We pick out underwear. He's so excited to wear his Power Rangers underwear. And now he's just pooping in his underwear. So is that what happens? Like, this is not what happened to Harry. So then John said, forget it back into diapers which i think is the fail i think you're not supposed to do that like once you start you're not supposed to go back so really this is john's fail <laughs>
2: <laughs> your fail is that you acceded to john's fail. fail failed failed right. request
0: well listeners you can write in and tell me if that's a fail
2: that's not unco- like so the same thing happened with our kids that like they were they seemed like they were doing so well and then we put underpants on them and then they just it was like unprecedented amounts of shit came out of them directly into the underpants like instantly like right. within seconds of us putting these underpants on them we didn't understand it at all but it seems normal
0: yeah yeah, yeah. probably
2: and w- and I sort of feel with potty training that like whatever yes it will all work itself out and yes you can consider this a low-level fail but also it doesn't matter it like a year from now it will be fine
0: okay well then maybe I them because I have nothing worse this week <laughs> good job <laughs> okay let's move on to our first topic When you look at the national statistics on college graduation rates, there are two big trends that stand out right away, writes Paul Tuff in his cover story in the latest issue of the New York Times Magazine. The first is that there are a whole lot of students who make it to college but never get their degrees. The second is that whether a student graduates or not seems to depend almost entirely on just one factor, how much money his or her parents make. University of Texas has started trying to do something to turn these trends around, and Paul, author of the recent book, How Children Succeed, is on the phone from his home in Montauk to tell us about that effort and to talk more broadly about what lessons we as parents can take from the UT experiment. Hey, Paul. Hello. Thanks for being here. Uh, so first, can you tell our listeners a bit about Vanessa Brewer, who is the just the kind of student UT is trying to reach?
1: Yes. Um, so Vanessa is a just just finished her freshman year at the University of Texas, and I um, met her last fall, uh, just as she was getting started with her freshman year. She's from a working-class suburb of Dallas called Mesquite. Um, and one of the interesting things about the University of Texas is that after some affirmative action battles a few uh, years ago, they started admitting students um, uh, under what's called the top 10% law. So if you are in the top 10% of your high school graduating class anywhere in any public high school in um, Texas, you can automatically get into UT, and that's how Vanessa got in. She was, uh, I think, in the top 6% of her class. Um, so she was a very good student, uh, but then she got to UT, and... and um, a number of things started to trip her up. I think one was that she uh, didn't go to a really demanding high school. Um, it was you know, less demanding than high schools in more high-income neighborhoods. And there was also the fact that neither of her parents had gone to college. Um, her parents had her when they were really young. Um, and so they weren't able to to kind of understand the college experience, I think, as well as other parents did. So when Vanessa hit a, um, uh, a little hurdle early on in her freshman year, she failed her first statistics class. Uh, I'm sorry, she failed her first statistics test. Um, she ended up reacting and, and Vanessa overreacted. And they, they started thinking, well, maybe she should have gone to a, a junior college instead, a community college.
2: And in that respect, uh, she's very f- similar to a lot of the students that Texas is trying to reach with this new program that you talk about in this Times Magazine piece. How does that program work?
1: Um, yeah, so, so there are a lot of students like Vanessa, um, especially from working-class or low-income families uh, who aren't graduating in high numbers right now from UT, even though they're great students when they arrive. So these programs um, are trying to change the surroundings that they have. They're, they're helping them in a few different ways. One is through straightforward financial aid. Um, it's a, a $5,000 grant each year second is through academic help. Uh, one of the problems with a lot of these students is that they come in academically behind. And so these uh, programs and uh, give them more tutoring, more support early on. Um, they continue to put them in demanding non-remedial classes, but they give them more help getting through them. And then they also help them with sort of the, the, the psychological messages that they're receiving, the environment that they're in. Um, and for a lot of first-generation college students, that environment and a lot of elite colleges can feel very... Um, Uh, exclusive and and something that excludes them, that they don't feel welcome, they don't feel a sense of belonging. Um, And so UT is really going out of its way to try to figure out how to send the the, uh, opposite message to make students feel like they're part of this community of scholars. Um, and, And so some of those messages are pretty overt and straightforward, and some are more subtle, I think.
0: The piece seems to strongly suggest that remedial education is overall not a good thing. And I'm wondering if you know if this is an idea that's gaining steam throughout education, not just higher ed, or if this is something that just UT is, is coming to. Uh, well,
1: the, the other place where I've uh, heard about it a lot is in community college. Um, so in community college, one of the things that tr- trips up a lot of students, especially low-income students, is the developmental math or remedial math classes that a lot of them have to take right at the beginning of, um, uh, of their first year. And there have been some interesting experiments that I didn't get into in the piece um, where uh, approaching those math classes in a different way, making them actually, um, in some cases, harder and more demanding. Um, but making them more manageable for students uh, is leading to much higher success rates. So I think for a variety of reasons, there's a way that that for a student who's just starting their college career to say, well, the first thing you need to do is high school math, um, is sending them exactly the wrong message. It sends them the message that they don't belong, that they can't keep up, that they can't uh, perform at a college level. And for a lot of students, especially first-generation students, those are already anxieties that they bring to the campus with them on on the beginning of their freshman year. Um, And so sometimes things can really viral
2: from that point. So one of the most amazing things in this piece, which is full of amazing things, I thought, was this incredible, incredibly successful and magical-seeming program started at UT alongside this program by this um, uh, professor, David Yeager, um, who has found that as you say in your piece that the simple act of basically delivering a message to students from an older student saying basically that once they struggled to but they worked hard and learned they belong and, and got smarter and then asking new freshmen to then write that message for some future freshmen has like this incredible effect on the sticking power Sort of the stick-to-itiveness of these some of these disadvantaged students. Um, can you talk a little bit about how that worked and
1: uh, and and what the science behind that is? Sure. So David Yeager is a psychology professor um, at UT, but he uh, he's only been there for a couple of years, and before that, he was he did his um, psychological training at uh, Stanford, and Stanford has been for the last. Decade or so, this place where there's been a lot of really interesting research on the psychology of education. And one of the big things that they found is that in um, transition periods, including freshman year of college, um, students who feel some sort, some sense of exclusion, whether they're, you know, women in an engineering program or African Americans at an Ivy League college, that they often get. Tripped up that and, and that that the way they get tripped up is in two specific types of messages: one is about uh, belonging that they don 't feel like they belong, and the other is about ability that they 're anxious that they don 't have the ability to um, compete in, in these elite uh, institutions um, and I think what what these psychologists believe is that everybody in their in these moments has he receives those messages. You know, even the most prepared um, wealthy college student has moments in freshman year where they feel excluded, where they get in a fight, where they don't do well on a test. But um, a lot of students just sort of bounce back from those. They figure, oh well, this doesn't really have much to do with me. This is just something that went wrong today. But that students that that are already anxious about these questions of ability and belonging they um... for them those small setbacks turn into really big problems and it's very difficult for them to bounce back and as a result uh, they often drop out even if the 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 real problem is not that acute so what david yeager and this other um... psychologist at stanford gregory walton uh, are testing out is um, a series of messages that students receive in pretty short interventions uh, at the beginning of freshman year of college. They've also tested some in freshman year of high school that act as a kind of inoculation. So they, they're not really, I think, changing students' minds. They're planting in their minds this idea um, that... Uh, everybody goes through these things, that you're going to have these problems like feeling like you can't keep up, like feeling like you don't belong, but actually everybody's having that problem at the same time, and everybody gets over it. And there's something about that particular message that everybody has this problem and everybody gets over it that seems to be really powerful. And again, it, it does sort of act like an inoculation, and later in the semester when these um, uh, bad feelings arise, uh, they, they can be sort of subdued the way they're subdued in the more um, affluent students.
0: And the kids that are getting these messages are actually like years later doing better, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, the
1: the the the, the long longest term study is one that was done at a, an elite northeastern college by Gregory Walton, um, and that found that students who had received these messages in freshman year um, were continuing to. Uh, have much higher GPAs than the control group in their senior year of college. So um, somehow, somehow uh, if those results hold up, which they seem to, somehow that message is persisting. Um, and, and I think what, what David Yeager and Greg Walton would say is that it's not just about sort of some kind of mind control. It's actually about the fact that they then take, the students then actually do things differently. And that was something that I really saw in Vanessa Brewer's um, life. That you know, as she started to feel more connected and more um, confident in terms of her own ability, she started uh, applying herself a little bit more. She went to the tutoring center, you know, which which even though that that might feel um, Kind of crummy and might seem pointless if you think that you can't get better. She decided, I've got to pass this chemistry class. She started going, you know, six hours a week to this tutoring center. Um, she reached out to a stranger to ask if this stranger knew any nursing students who she might be able to connect with. She wants to become a nurse, um, and the student connected her with some nursing students. She joined this nursing association and, and started to, you know, feel really connected, as often happens to students in their freshman year. Um, and I think that that's what's happening in a lot of these interventions. That it's not just about some sort. Sort of magical change of mind. It's that um, that that little degree of extra confidence and extra security that students get through the intervention makes them behave differently in um, their freshman year. And those small decisions, those small changes of behavior, have a big impact on how well students do in college.
2: So, if this program like continues to work at Texas, or these sort of combination of programs, especially this magical inoculation, um, you know what impediments are there to this? to this kind of plan or, or program spreading to other colleges? I mean, is the only issue that not every college president reads the New York times magazine or are there what, 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 I mean, how can something like this spread? How does something like this spread?
1: Well, I guess I'd say there are, there are two possible um, uh, things that will stop it from spreading. One, one is that, um, you know, it is hard work. Uh, like I, it, I mean, I think that you could certainly argue that the, uh, the, small-scale psychological intervention that David Yeager and Gregory Walton are doing. It's, It's complicated, but it's not super expensive. Uh, but the work that this uh, administrator, that, who I read about, David Laud- Laudy, is doing um, with programs that are, you know, involve tutoring and mentoring and advising and things like that, those, you know, uh, they cost about seven million dollars a year, and that's something uh, that some college presidents, uh, I think, won't won't feel the need to invest. Um, I mean, I hope they do, but but I don't think that it's just a simple case of you know changing some brochures and thinking you're going to solve this problem. There's also the question of um, how much colleges really want uh, to change the demographic makeup of their schools. I mean, there's a good case to be made that a lot of colleges don't want um, a lot more low-income students on their campus uh, because low-income students are expensive. (laughs) You know, they they require more financial aid. Uh, They often require more, you know, tutoring and support. Um, And so the fact that so many elite colleges uh, are now much more wealthy in terms of their student population than they used to is possibly not just um, an accident, or at least not entirely an accident. So it may take a, a bigger change in terms of how we think about what higher education should look like um, in order to convince a lot of institutions that this is the sort of program that they're going to want to put into effect.
2: Does, is this a program that can also then filter downwards in some way? I mean, are, it seems like obviously they've already done studies with incoming freshmen in high school, but did, is it, did you get the sense from these researchers that there's applicable plans here for s- low-income students in exclusive high schools or low-income students in any kind of high school or elementary school? I mean, can I have sixth graders write letters to my daughter about the standards of learning tests she's about to take and how they thought they were really hard, but it turned out that they worked hard and got better, and she'll do better on these tests?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there is uh, you know, I think that Jaeger and Walton would say, like, you know, don't just think that you could do more or less what we describe and it's going to work perfectly. Um, they really do work hard at trying to make the messages perfectly uh, suited for each particular situation. Right. But that said, you know, I do think that there's a lot that that you can take away from this. And I think about it as, you know, a parent of a four-year-old, that I do think that there's a way that we, all of us, get messages when we're in new situations. Um, You know, we get anxious when we're in new situations. My son just started pre-K, you know. Um, And and I think there were lots of ways when he started pre-K that he was anxious in the same way that a college freshman is. Uh, He felt like he didn't belong. He wasn't sure he could do the things that everybody else was doing. Um, And and I do think that there's a way that, you know, parents or educators or anyone else can be aware of this research and can think about what kind of messages are going to counteract that. Uh, And I think it is, you know, a lot of this comes out of the research on uh, mindset and that idea that when students believe, children believe that they can change, that they can actually get better at things, um, that makes a big difference. and, And that we as parents like tend to give them sometimes... Uh, without realizing it, we give them messages about their ability to change or their inability to change that make a big difference to them. That that all, I think, is very useful and practical um, uh, stuff and, and to use as parents or educators or anybody else.
0: Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Paul. This is really interesting.
1: Thanks very much. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Paul.
0: Each week we take a call and question from a listener, and we would love to hear from you. Please give us a call at 424-255-7833. That's 424-255-RUDE, what Dan says he is to his kids or what Dan says I am to him. Dan, you never say you are to me. I'm never rude. Ask us anything and we'll do our best to answer. So here is today's question. It comes from Allison. Hi, my name is Allison, and I had a question for the Mom and Dad are Fighting podcast. Um, I'm wondering if either of you have ever experienced um, difficulties with managing time between both sets of grandparents. Um, my husband and I hope to have children in the near future, and my brother and sister-in-law are currently expecting, and all of us have both sets of parents living uh, within the same metropolitan area. And... I think there's some tension or some nervousness starting to arise about, you know, which grandparents may see the kids more or get babysitting privileges. And I'm wondering how anybody really um, handles that situation and the potential jealousy that can erupt. Aside from keeping a calendar, I don't really know how you really uh, measure all of that. So, thanks. This is actually a problem I wish I had because I, we don't have any in-town grandparents. So, I'm sure if we did, that would it would be something that I would have to consider. Um, but I wish we had grandparents around more to help. So Dan, maybe you have,
2: uh, it's a good question. And, but it's one that I think is if you end up having a problem with grandparents wanting to have your kids more often than they are able to, you are essentially winning at having grandparents, in your family, like the like your goal, as the instant you have kids, will be for your parents or your partner's parents to take them as often as possible, under any circumstances, whatever. Right whatever before it you takes. have kids, you're
0: trying to set up all these boundaries. We had a rule right. my fa- in between my husband and I before we had kids, and my parents could only visit a certain amount of a number of times a year. And, <laughs> sorry, my parents actually know this, uh, but now. Yeah, yeah, you want to help you whenever get. you want. So but
2: it is there is tension and for for us and our family it specifically arises around holidays. Um, just in that we have for for various reasons we just basically end up always doing Christmas with Alia's family and that's not because like Alia like twisted my arm and, and forced me into it I'm also 100% behind that decision like it's just easier and it's cheaper and it's makes more sense for us and we try and do other things with my family at other times, but like Maggie and Beeman have won Christmas. Basically they've won the war against the war on Christmas. And um and that does create tension. But I mean what I would say from the standpoint of someone who has negotiated this a little bit is be as grateful as you can for the amount of time that your, that your parents and your partner's parents do want to spend with those kids and do your best as much as you can to get those grandparents also knowing each other really well, spending time with the kids and each other in larger family gatherings um, or, or even like pairing off in sort of odd, unexpected ways with one grandparent and the, from one family and the other grandparent and the other family to do things.
0: So that they're not competing.
2: Yeah, so that they're not competing <clears throat> so that they have a sense that what they're, because really, what you want is for them to feel not that they're creating important bonds with their grandchildren, but that they are your employees there to babysit your children whenever you need them to at a moment's notice. That should be your goal in the long run.
0: Thanks for the call, Allison. Last episode, I asked listeners for TV show recommendations for my kids. So I just want to say you guys totally pulled through. I'm, great recommendations. Yeah, amazing. Yes. Like, I feel like a 100. I don't know. But I'm not going to list all of them because there were too many. I just want to give a special shout out to Anna. Who recommended the show Hole in the Wall, which she says features families (laughs) competing to fit themselves through holes in moving walls or risk being knocked into a swimming pool? Which I am probably just going to watch on my own. I should note, though, that like I have tried in the past few weeks, as all these recommendations come in, I suggest to my kids, like, oh, let's watch this. Oh, and I describe them and I pull it up on Netflix and show them. But some kid at school told them about Rescue Bots, and now all they (laughs) want to watch is some like a Rescue Bots show. And I find myself there, like, trying to convince them to watch one shitty show over another shitty show, which seems pointless and reminds me of a time that I heard John say to Harry, you cannot have uh, Cheetos until you finish your bacon. We say stuff like that all the time. (laughs) You may
2: not have dessert until you finish those French fries, we say.
0: So thank you guys. (laughs) Keep them coming. But so far... I'll admit that my kids haven't actually watched any of that. But
2: Hole in the Wall is amazing. And the instant your kids, like, see you watching it and laughing uproariously, like, pants weddingly to the point of not seeming potty-trained, they will they will <laughs> show up and watch it with you, and it will be family time. All right, so let's go on to our second topic. Um, it is the Mom and Dad are Fighting Parenting Ethicist, um, where Allison's going to help me solve retroactively a ethical dilemma that I faced uh, in the parking lot of the Harris Teeter in Arlington, Virginia. So... It was a hot and sunny day last week. It got pretty hot in Arlington. It was like 88, 90 degrees. And I come out of the grocery store with like a big full grocery cart. And I notice that right next to my car is another car that's just parked in the sun with the windows all rolled up. And there are two kids in the back seat. And now this is not like a wine Weingarten situation. The kids are not babies. They're they're two girls and they're aged. My guess as to their ages is like 11 or 12 for the older one and 9 for the younger one. So I unload my groceries and I bring my car back to the store and then I go back to my car and when I get in the car it is like boiling hot in my car and that makes me think geez these kids right next to my car I'm like a little worried about them. Like they're older so they can probably take care of themselves but still it is i bet it is really hot in their car so i just like i turn my car on i turn the air conditioning on obviously but i wait a second to like see what happens and they're like fanning each other with the pages of a book and they don't look like miserable but they're definitely like sweating so you know after about like 10 or 12 minutes pass um the kids are just looking really uncomfortable it's 88 degrees outside I don't know what to do. I like asked one passing by mom if she thought we should do something. And she was just like nervously was like, uh, I bet hopefully they'll be okay. And then she drove away. <laughs> so, okay. So, should I, A, should I like go into the grocery store or? shit, there's like an ABC store there. Maybe the parent is like drunk in the ABC store. I don't know. But anyway, should I like ask, hey, there's a Toyota with two kids in the sun. Is it yours? Or should B, should I like try to convince the kids to get out of the car and go stand in the shade? Probably getting the cops called on me if I try and do that. C, should I just like wait around until a parent shows up and then say something politely or just not say anything and just like run away with my own cowardice draped across my shoulders? Or D, should I just stay out of it because the kids are old enough to get out of the car if things get too hot and anyways, look at me giving a fuck when it's not my job to give a fuck or e something i didn't even think of what should i do
0: i'm going with c definitely not d it is your job to give a fuck if you think the kids are in danger i mean obviously the line is always like are they in danger or am i being like we're so we're so concerned about butting our noses into other people's business and i do not
2: want to be like that that dad yes
0: I think probably C, but with the not saying something, Mm -hmm. like stay, make sure the kids are okay, Mm -hmm. the parent arrives, Mm -hmm. you see the kids are okay, you leave, you don't say something.
2: What if the parent then took like another 20 minutes to get there? Then, Then what do I do? Whatever. That's a hypothetical. That's no, not what no.
0: It's not. So when, so as you're telling the story, I'm thinking of sometimes on the news, you know, the like the, there'll be these horrible local news stories about like with a video of like a man who was dying on the street, like right. a homeless man who's dying on the street, and everyone's walking over, like right. stepping over him, and you think that's you know ah, that's horrendous. How could people do that? And yet, how many times have I walked past a homeless person on the street in New York City who is sleeping, maybe, right. or right. is right. dead? You right. know, like, and I haven't done a thing. So. I, you know, I uh, I guess I see why saying something to the parents in a, in a situation where he seems extreme. I guess what's the downside? They're going to be mad at you. That's yeah. the downside. And what is that? What is that? That's nothing.
2: Right. That's the thing. But it is amazing. I did think of that. I did think, well, like, well, the only, yes, the only downside is that maybe they'll yell at me. Big deal. But then maybe they won't lock their kids in the car next time. But, like, still, there's, like, this incredible... Like awkwardness barrier to that kind of public intervention. Like, you know, on multiple levels for me, one level is obviously that I'm a stranger, a guy, no less, and there's these two girls in a car. And like, so just dealing with them directly is obviously it seems sort of like a non starter unless we're in like an actual dire emergency. But even, yes, the idea of like whatever parent comes out essentially saying to them, I a parent and trying to say as nicely as possible that I think that you are you did a really dumb thing and you're a potentially a bad parent. Like, that's essentially what I'm saying, even if I'm saying it as nicely as possible. And so that was hard. Like, I, I couldn't find a way to overcome that. So here
0: is how I do? solved this
2: problem. Um, I went into Starbucks. I bought the biggest bottle of water they I had. I brought it out back to the parking lot. I, like, waved at the kids in the car and was like, do you want this water? And they, like, looked terrified and were like, no. So then I left the water on the trunk of the car and I drove away.
0: Okay, that, I mean, no, no judgment here, <laughs> but that didn't do anything, right? Because if they're, like, dying as he's in the car, they're not going to be able to actually function to get out of the car and grab the water, right? By the time they figure out what's happening, maybe, it's too late. Maybe
2: if just one of them is dying, the other one can get the water. Anyways, as I was driving away, I saw their mom come up, pick up the bottle of water and be like,
0: what the hell is this? Well, at least you had that piece of mind. <laughs> at
2: least I, but so, so yes, I, I, that probably was not the right thing to do, but I sort of felt like it was better than nothing, but not good enough. But, you know the general rule here is parents don't leave your fucking kids in the car even if they're old because uh as i learned in doing research on this in those 10 minutes that i was sitting there watching them their car heated up from 90 degrees to 109 degrees inside and in another 10 minutes it would have been 119 degrees inside so just don't do that and so the whole point of this is don't make me feel bad other parents Our producer chris is waving at us from the booth he has a question Yeah. I was just wondering if you think that your thought process on this was shaded by being a parent in addition to just being a guy like you deal with these experiences yourself and you're not just another random actor. You also have kids that you look after. Yeah, it was shaded in both ways. I mean, that's the problem. It was shaded toward me wanting to act because I, you know, because I know what happens to kids who get locked in cars. And I know that if my kids were in danger, I would want someone to step in if they were even if they were a stranger. But it also means that I have been subject to lots of random busybodies, like walking up to me on the street and judging my totally normal parenting decisions, which this is not a totally normal parenting decision necessarily. Although maybe it is because she's 12. I don't know. But it means that I'm more sensitive also to seeming like that jerk who is like, boy, your parenting sucks. Let me ride in here and save your children from you, which even though they were fine. So it's I think that's both. the
0: voice that we all need to like quiet a little bit you think so I do, and yeah, I do i don 't want to be one of those parents either, but like the alternative is much much worse.
2: Well I hope those kids enjoyed their water
0: i wouldn 't have even noticed them though if i wasn 't <laughs> a parent I think do you think you would have noticed them chris i don 't know if I would no- have noticed them now i don 't know
2: that 's a good point yeah i don 't know yeah. i don 't know I definitely notice them like instantly like there 's two kids in a car alone what 's that 's weird?
0: Okay, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, As we approach Memorial Day weekend and summer and fun swim time, I just want to recommend—actually, this is like stealing something of Dan's because Dan is the one who edited this— piece, but a slate piece, Drowning Doesn't Look Like Drowning by Mario Vitone. It's a piece that describes what someone drowning looks like, and it's not what you think. And I'm not going to say anything more or explain what it looks like, because I think it's important enough that you should read it to be safe this summer. So that's my recommendation. That's
2: a very good recommendation and a very valuable piece. Um, My recommendation is a little more prosaic, uh, but it is um, a recommendation that Allison um, and her urinating and defecating children have experienced firsthand I am um, recommending the 100% greatest baby gift that you can send anyone who has just had a baby. We have new babies coming in our family, um, not our immediate family. No, don't panic. <laughs> uh, in our extended family, we have various brothers, etc., having babies. Um, and uh, and uh, we're there. those kids are going to get what we have given every baby who's been born in our life since our children were born, the greatest gift that you can give a new mom and dad um, absorbent blue underpads called chucks of the type that they give you at the hospital to put under your shitting, pissing infant as you are trying and struggling to change its diaper even though it's screaming at you and possibly peeing all over you. You can order them from uh, many companies. We get ours from North Shore Care, which is a... um, there's no easy way to say this. It is a company that sells incontinence-related products to adults and children, but we um, have just purchased their um, adult incontinence underpads and sent them in boxes of 100 or 500 to the new parents in our life and uh, and. I think they're extremely valuable and I recommend them to everyone.
0: You think they're extremely valuable, valuable and you get a real kick out of oh, sure, imagining yeah. people opening the box. Yes. Right? I that's mean I've part gotten it the twice fun. and it was fun both times.
2: I know. And you used every <laughs> single one of them, didn't you? I did. <laughs> yes. yes. And
0: then bought more. Thank Absolutely. you. Not just for my kids. Uh for okay. your
2: husband too. <laughs>
0: And that's our show. Please email us at momandad at slate.com, M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com with your thoughts about today's show, parenting tips and suggestions for future topics.
2: Tell me what I should have done in that parking lot.
0: Yeah. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and please call us with your questions at 424-255-7833. Thanks to Chris Wade for producing this podcast and also to Andy Bowers, executive producer of all Slate podcasts. Thank you to our new intern, Laura Smith. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Allison. Thanks for listening.